Lecture 10, The Second Viking Conquest. Welcome back. Last time, we talked about the golden age of Anglo-Saxon England, and we looked at the art and literature of this very rich time in English history. But we also got some hints of trouble to come, because England was going to be hit again by raids from Scandinavia starting in the 990s. We might call this a second Viking conquest of England, but it's a very different kind of conquest from the first one in the 9th century. The reason why it's so different is that England has changed and the Vikings have changed. We've seen that the House of Wessex had been able to take advantage of the Vikings knocking off the other Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. They were the last man standing, and so when it was time to reconquer England, they were the ones to do it. And that's what exactly happened over the course of the 10th century. So you have a much more unified England by the end of the 10th century although it's a little bit different still in the north, not as well integrated into the kingdom as a whole. But things have been changing in Scandinavia too. They have also been forming more stable, unified kingdoms. When the Viking Age began, you'll remember, we saw lots of little raids by a few boats at a time. Then you start to see large groups of maybe 50 boats with one powerful, charismatic leader in charge. But what changes at the end of the 10th century is now you get Viking forces led not by individual leaders, but by kings. The Scandinavian kings are now powerful enough to lead an invasion fleet. So now you have a more unified England going up against a more unified Viking invader. Now, this is good news and bad news for England. The Vikings can't pick off English kingdoms one at a time the way they did in the 9th century. But on the other hand, if you defeat the English king now, you've won the kingdom, or at least you've got a pretty good chance of doing that. So unity can have a downside as well. So let's look at what happens in Denmark in the 10th century that makes all of this possible. The kingdom coalesces under the reign of King Harold, surnamed Bluetooth. Another nickname we can't really explain, but it doesn't really sound very good. Harold is a canny politician. He's trying to make sure he doesn't have to worry too much about Germany to his south. So he gives some scope to Christian missionaries in Denmark. This mollifies the Germans, and he ultimately accepts the Christian faith himself. In 985, he's succeeded by his son, Swain Forkbeard, and at least that's a nickname we probably can figure out. Norway, too, has been getting its act together in the late 10th century. This is thanks to a very energetic king named Olaf Tryggvason, and he also becomes a Christian. Now, just because the Vikings are Christians now, or a lot of them are, that doesn't mean they've lost their appetite for expansion. It's just now they don't have the pagan stigma attached to them. And they can also command much more support than the earlier generation. These are much more sophisticated, much more unified enterprises, even than those big armies that were led by freelance entrepreneurs in the, 10th, in the 9th century. Now, the Danish and Norwegian kings are on the rise, and England in the late 10th century is a tempting target. We saw in our last lecture, England is prosperous. 
It's certainly in large part due to the stability that the Wessex dynasty brings. In addition, England has another very important attraction to the Danes. There are a lot of Danes in England. We saw that large parts of the country had been settled heavily by Danes in the 9th century, and those parts of England are probably bilingual throughout the 10th century, and there are certainly plenty of trading contacts and other kinds of ties back to Denmark. They're still very much in operation. And the Danes from Denmark figure that the Danes in England can act as a sort of a fifth column in England. If there's a Danish invasion of England, these English Danes might switch sides and help the invaders. So these are two very powerful reasons why the Danes might try to conquer England. It's rich, and we have fellow countrymen there who might help out. But there's another reason that may or may not have been part of the actual planning process of the Danes, but it certainly helped. The saving grace of the English in the 9th century had been the leadership of King Alfred. In the late 10th century, England does not have an Alfred. It's possible that the Danes knew this and thought it was a good time to strike. So who is ruling England in the late 10th century? Last time I talked about Edgar the Peaceable, the king who was such a sponsor of monastic reform. He died in 975, and he was succeeded by Edward, the son of his first wife, Athelflaed. Now a wicked stepmother enters the picture, at least that's what we get in the rumors that circulated at the time, because Edgar had married for the second time a woman named Alfthrith. By this second marriage, he had a son named Athelred. Now, Alfthrith was a very powerful woman. She had many friends at court, and naturally, she wanted her son, Athelred, to be king instead of his older half-brother, Edward. And since both boys are underage, it really turns on a faction fight between the noble supporters of each prince. And three years into Edward's reign, he is assassinated. He was arriving on horseback for a sort of informal get-together with his half-brother and stepmother. And at first, his brother's attendants came out to greet him. And at first, they offered the king ostentatious signs of respect. But then, they surrounded his horse, grabbed his hands, and stabbed him. Fingers pointed, naturally enough, at Queen Alfred. If you ask who benefits, well, there you are. It's not a crime we can solve this far after the fact, but I do think it's suspicious that nobody was ever punished. The consequences were momentous, though, because it meant that Athelred did come to the throne. He was too young to have been personally involved in the murder, but his whole reign was tainted by it. The nobles were split into factions. The murdered King Edward was venerated as a saint almost immediately. People called him Edward the Martyr, and that's a lot to live up to. And poor Athelred did not manage to live up to it. He's one of the most maligned of English kings. We'll meet some others. King John, for example, doesn't have a good reputation. But for sheer haplessness, you don't get much worse than Athelred, and that's certainly how his subjects thought of him at the time. Now, one thing a lot of people do know about Athelred is his nickname. He was called Athelred Unrad. 
Now, most of the time, this is translated into modern English as Athelred the Unready, as if he were not quite ready for prime time or something like that. But that's not exactly what it means in Old English, though I think Ethelred the Unready also fits. The word rad means counsel or advice. Thus, the word unrad means no counsel or bad counsel. So the king is being called Athelred Bad Counsel. Now, this is a play on the king's name because the name Athelred actually means noble counsel. So the king's nickname made him Noble Counsel, Bad Counsel. That's not very flattering. So how does he earn this very unflattering nickname? He earns it by failing to defeat the Vikings. Starting in 991, the Vikings return. I talked in the last lecture about the raid that led to the Battle of Malden, at which the English commander Birchnoth was killed. That was part of a substantial raid led by the king of Norway, Olaf Tryggvason. You'll remember that the Viking commander at Malden had offered to accept tribute from the English, but Birchnoth had stubbornly refused. Well, later that year, King Athelred does agree to pay the tribute. At any rate, this payment in 991 is the first of the payments that, are become, that will become known as Danegeld. This payment turns into a tax that is collected at irregular intervals down to the 12th century, long after there are any Danes around to worry about. But apparently the English kings found it hard to abolish a tax. It was a, a useful form of revenue. But anyway, the payment of this protection money only bought the English a little time. Because in 994, the Danes arrived, led by their king, Swain Forkbeard. Once again, the king paid them off. And again, in 1002, and in 1007, and in 1012. And each time, the amounts got bigger and bigger and bigger. Remember what Kipling said, if once you have paid him the Danegeld, you never get rid of the Dane. Now, you'll remember that King Alfred had paid off his Viking enemies. Why wasn't it okay for Athelred to do it? The simple reason is because Athelred lost. Alfred is an effective commander. Athelred isn't. And people at the time are quite aware of this. We have a very damning description of the military situation in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. That's the year-by-year -year record of events in England that starts under King Alfred, but it's still being added to year-by-year -year at this point. Under the year 1010, we read, When the enemy were in the east, then the army was kept in the west. And when they were in the south, then our army was in the north. Clearly, no one really knows what's going on. So the king tried getting some good advice. The chronicle goes on to say, Then all the counselors were ordered to the king, and it had then to be decided how this country should be defended. But whatever was then decided, it did not stand for even one month. And I think this is the sort of thing that gets the king nicknamed Bad Counsel. He can't settle on a coherent policy and stick with it. Now, King Ethelred does make one decision that is going to have huge implications for English history down the road. And whether they're good or bad is something I'll leave open. 
The king is concerned about the Vikings getting support from Normandy. Normandy is, of course, right across the English Channel in France, and it's territory that had been settled by Vikings early in the 10th century. Their leader, Rollo, had accepted baptism from the French king in exchange for lands in uh, western France, and that becomes Normandy, and it's named Normandy after the Northmen who settle there. Now, by the late 10th century, the Normans have pretty much settled down and become uh, Frenchmen. They're not speaking Old Norse anymore, they're speaking French. But they still have ties to Scandinavia. And they were sometimes letting Viking fleets uh, refit uh, on their coast. So Athelred decided on a diplomatic maneuver to try to short-circuit this connection. He decides to marry the Duke's sister, Emma. And the marriage takes place in 1002. Now, by this point, the king has been on the throne for 24 years. He has children from an earlier marriage already. Emma was quite young when she came to England, but she did bear the king three children, two sons, Edward and Alfred, and a daughter, Godgifu. The relationship doesn't really end up helping England against the Vikings very much, but it's successful in one sense. Normandy is available for King Athelred to flee to, when he ultimately loses his kingdom, Duke Richard of Normandy does end up taking in his hapless brother-in-law, who was kicked off the throne. The importance of the marriage in the long run, though, is that Emma of Normandy ends up having a great-nephew named William, Duke of Normandy. We'll get to him in the next lecture. For now, though, let's go back to England's Viking problem in the early 11th century. Throughout the 990s and the first decade of the new millennium, England had been facing the threat from Swain Forkbeard of Denmark. Sometimes Swain raided, sometimes he accepted Danegeld, but he never just went away. And in 1009, he makes a huge effort at final conquest in England. He doesn't quite pull it off. He accepts one final Danegeld payment three years later in 1012, but in 1013, he comes back with a bigger, stronger army, and this time he succeeds. Athelred's supporters had never been a very unified bunch. There had been factional splits since the start of his reign. They'd never really gotten any better. And once Swain arrived in 1013, many of the English king's followers began to defect to Swain. They saw brighter prospects ahead under the Danes. And the Danish card paid off. The area of Danish settlement in eastern England backed Swain wholeheartedly. The king of England is forced to flee. He takes refuge in Normandy with his wife's relatives. And most English people accept Swain as their king. But the story's not over yet. There are going to be several more twists and turns. In 1014, Swain Forkbeard dies. He's been king of England for just a year. He leaves behind a son, Knut, who was very young at the time, only in his teens. And at that point, the English magnates decide to invite King Athelred back from Normandy. But they impose a very interesting condition on the king, and I think it's very telling. It shows us just what people were worried about. Athelred can come back and rule them again, but only if he would govern them more justly than he did before. That's what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says. So there's obviously some very hard bargaining that's going on before Athelred is allowed to come back. But come back he did. 
He faced the same faction fights as before, and the Danes are still there. They still control large sections of England. And finally, in 1016, the king dies. The English cause is now taken up by the king's oldest son, Edmund, the son of his first marriage, not the son of Edmund Emma of Normandy. Edmund has a much more encouraging-sounding nickname than his father. He is known as Edmund Ironside, and he's a successful warrior. Edmund successfully defends London from a Danish attack. He beats Knut's army at the Battle of Essendon in Essex. Then, the two commanders, Edmund and Knut, seem to have made a kind of agreement to partition England and rule it justly. This was an admission that neither side was strong enough to defeat the other completely. Now, who knows how long such an agreement might have worked in practice. In the fall of 1016, Edmund Ironside died suddenly. Some people suspected foul play. So who's going to be king? Edmund has a very young son, just a baby, so that's not a good option. His half-brothers, the sons of King Athelred by his second marriage to Emma of Normandy, were also very young. The decision fell to the English Witan. I talked about the Witan in a previous lecture. This is the Council of Advisors to the King, and they have to figure out what to do in 1016, and they make a fairly obvious, realistic choice. They offer the throne to Knut. Now, Knut is the man on the spot. We'll see at several points over the coming lectures that when you have a disputed royal succession, it helps a lot to be the man on the spot. Knut is already in control of large sections of England. He seemed up to the job. After all, he had fought Edmund Ironside to a stalemate. And he does prove up to the job. Knut's reign as king is largely successful, and it's mostly remembered fondly by the English. Now, that may seem remarkable. He's a foreign conqueror, after all. But the change from Athelred seems to have been a welcome one. Several things, I think, went into making Knut a popular king. For one thing, he's good at public relations. He makes a very adroit move the year after he takes the throne. He marries King Athelred's widow, Emma. And this provides a kind of continuity. The English now have the same queen they had before. So there's a lot in it for Knut to marry Emma. But I think the more interesting question is, why does Emma marry Knut? I mean, this is the son of the man who drove her first husband into exile. He's substantially younger than she is, although maybe that's an incentive. Nobody knows. We have a biography of Emma written later in her life, but it doesn't go into the queen's motivations. That's not the sort of thing people wrote about in the 11th century. But I think we can be fairly safe in speculating that life as a widow isn't nearly as exciting as life as a queen. Emma seems to have been a fairly ambitious person, she doubtless wanted to be back at the center of things. And she does do her dynastic duty by Knut also. She bears Knut a son named Hartha Knut and a daughter who dies relatively young. Knut had a rather colorful private life, though, because Emma is not the only lady in his life. He had been involved since at least the time he came to the throne with a noble Englishwoman named Alf Gifu of Northampton. Now, whether they're ever married in a formal sense isn't clear. In Scandinavia in the 11th century, they're not that fussy about that sort of thing. Now, after Knut marries Emma, he does not by any means put off Alf Gifu. There are, practically speaking, two queens in England, and each has patronage networks, 
and each has children to promote. Alfgifu had a couple of sons. Um, we think it's not entirely clear. There were lots of nasty rumors at the time about the parentage of her sons. It may be though that the situation got too tricky even for Knut to handle because in 1030 Knut sends Alfgifu off to Norway with her older son Swain to help rule the lands that he controlled there. Still, for over a decade, both of these women, Alfgifu and Emma, are at the center of English politics. It's a unique and very intriguing episode in English history. There have been many powerful royal mistresses since then, but never anything quite like this. But despite having a very colorful private life, Knut is a committed Christian on 11th century terms, and he certainly seems to have seen the public relations value of being seen to be a good Christian. He and Emma together patronize a lot of powerful churches in England. The memory of this patronage is preserved in the chronicles of these monasteries. There's a wonderful example from the Chronicle of Ely in Cambridgeshire. Ely is in the Fen country of eastern England, and at that time it was basically an island surrounded by marshes and streams. The best way to get there was by boat. But Knut thought it was worth going to see it, so he and Emma came one year to celebrate the Feast of Candlemas on February 2nd. Now, as their boat is approaching the church, The king hears the beautiful sound of the monks singing. The music is drifting down from the church to his boat, and he's so moved that he composes a little song in English, and it starts out, "The monks in Ely sweetly sang," and it goes on to say that his men should row closer to shore so that he can hear the music of the monks more clearly. The Ely chronicler, who's writing over a century later, he says that the song is still sung. In Ely, so that's a charming story. Whether Knut wrote the song himself or not isn't really important. What matters is he's remembered as someone who was devoted to the church, and that counts for a lot. He also made a very public and very splendid pilgrimage to Rome in 1027. He timed his pilgrimage so that he could be present at the coronation of the German emperor. This is a way of enhancing his status with the Pope and with all of the important rulers of Europe. So Knut is a very astute politician. He also did a lot of things right on the political front at home. Even though he's a Dane, he's a conqueror. He's careful to work as much as possible within the existing English political framework. He doesn't change the system of local government very much at all. He pretty much leaves it alone. It's not broke. I'm not going to fix it. And this certainly helps in conciliating public opinion. He also doesn't shut out the English from royal patronage, and this may have been the most important policy of all. It's true he could be ruthless. It was clear, for example, that factionalism had been behind most of the troubles of Athelred's reign. Knut is not going to have that same dynamic repeated under his rule. So, in the first few years of his reign, he really quite ruthlessly purges his court of troublesome elements, and by that I mean that he just basically had people murdered. It was brutal. But it was effective, and the people who were loyal to Knut stayed loyal. And in fact, he accomplished a pretty remarkable feat. He managed to create a fairly united Anglo-Danish aristocracy. He fostered marriages between Englishmen and Danes, and a lot of those marriages worked out very well. The one that would have the most important long-term implications was the marriage between an English nobleman named Godwin and a Danish noblewoman named Githa. Who was related by marriage to Knut himself, and this marriage would produce Harold Godwinson, 
the last Anglo-Saxon king of England. More about him in the next lecture. I mention Godwin here not just because of his marriage, though. He's also important because he's an example of one of the two important things about English government that Knut did change. Up until this point, the most important administrative unit in England was the shire or county, and each shire was ruled by an ealdorman or increasingly by a sheriff. For example, Birtnoth, the English commander at the Battle of Malden, he was ealdorman of Essex. There were thus potentially quite a few aldermen at any one time because there were several dozen English counties. We saw in an earlier lecture sometimes several shires would be grouped together, but Knut decides to take this trend much further by appointing only a few commanders, each of whom would rule a large group of shires, and they would bear the Scandinavian title Earl. Now, Earl is later going to be a very important title within the English aristocracy, and it all comes from Knut's reign. Now, Knut put Godwin in charge as Earl of Wessex, and there were also Earls of East Anglia, Mercia, and Northumbria. In effect, Knut is reconstituting the old Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, but now they're administrative units of a unified English state. This change is going to have important consequences after Knut's death, because what it means is there are going to be a small number of very powerful nobles who are going to compete for power. This is fine as long as a king as strong as Knut is in charge, but it might spell trouble if the king is weak. The other major change that Knut makes, though, is unambiguously positive. He creates a new royal bodyguard composed of his best Scandinavian troops, and these men are known as the Housecarls. They're an elite fighting force, and they're always going to form the nucleus of the king's army. And in the future, they're going to prove to be the most reliable part of the English army by far. The last thing I want to say about Knut is that he is the star of one of the most famous royal anecdotes in English history. And one reason I like it so much is that it illustrates so perfectly what makes the job of a historian difficult and intriguing. The problem is that we've got the story in two versions, and they're contradictory. It's the story of Knut and the tides. Here's how the first version of the story goes. One day, when Knut is at the height of his power, he goes down to the seaside, and he orders his royal seat to be placed on the shore as the tide is coming in. Then he tells the tides that since he is king, they should obey him and not presume to come onto his land and wet his royal person. Of course, the tides don't listen, and the king gets splashed. He then leaps up and proclaims that earthly power is worthless. And ever afterwards, he refuses to wear his gold crown but places it instead on the image of Jesus affixed to the cross. So, in this version of the story, you have an arrogant king who is humbled. He learns a lesson and gets his priorities straight. But there's another version of the story. In this version, Knut is being plagued by a bunch of obsequious yes-men at court who keep telling him how wonderful he is. So, to teach them a lesson, he takes them all down to the beach tells the tides not to come in, and when they come in anyway, he turns to his courtiers and says, look, I'm just a man like you are. In this version of the story, Knut is humble all along. He knows how the world really works. 
It's his courtiers who are taught a lesson. Now, did either version of the story really happen? Both are recorded over a century after Knut's death. Each story is tailored to fit the larger theme of the respective works in which they occur. Clearly, I think what's happening is these two authors are taking a folk story about Knut and interpreting it in a way that's going to help them make a larger point. I think it's possible to say, though, that both versions reflect well on Knut in the end. Whether he starts out humble or only gets that way after he gets splashed by the tides, he's a king who has a realistic view of what kings can do, and he's remembered kindly on the whole. But Knut does fail at a very important task for a medieval king. He does not manage to produce a viable successor, despite having two queens. He has three sons, we think, two by Alf Gifu of Northampton, one by Emma. The older of the two sons of Alf Gifu, Swain, is in Norway at the time of Knut's death and not in a position to come to England. He's in the process of being driven out of Norway. At any rate, he dies in Denmark just a few months after his father. Hartha Knut, the son by Emma of Normandy, is ruling as regent in Denmark, because Knut is still, of course, king of Denmark as well as king of England. Hartha Knut can't leave Denmark because Denmark is about to be invaded. And Hartha Knut has to stay and defend Denmark. So Knut is succeeded by his second son, by Alf Gifu of Northampton, Harold Harefoot. And that's hair like rabbit. Presumably, he's either a fast runner or he has very big feet. He only lasts five years. And then Hartha Knut comes back from Denmark, rules for two years. And when he dies in 1042, that's the end of the Danish line in England. The second Viking conquest of England comes to a close with a dynastic whimper. Next time, we'll see what happens when the line of Knut runs out.